When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Christian McBride kicks off Black History Month this Friday at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. with The Movement Revisited, a tribute to Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Martin Luther King Jr., and Barack Obama. I spoke with the seven-time Grammy winner about his illustrious career, and we even bonded over a love for the movie Heat. Christian, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, uh, let's start with this actual program at the Kennedy Center. Um, there's going to be some music, some some readings. Um, tell me about who all is going to be voicing um, these passages from, from, from famous Black figures throughout history, right? That's correct. Four in particular, uh, Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, so the readers on the evening of February 4th will be Tamara Tooney, who will be uh, reading the words of Rosa Parks, Dion Graham, who will be reading the words of Muhammad Ali, Vondi Curtis Hall, who will be reading the voice of uh, the, the words of Malcolm X, and Keith David will be the voice of Martin Luther King Jr. Wow, it doesn't get any bigger than that. Did, did I also read uh, that, that you, you'll also be doing some readings and tributes to uh, former President Obama? Yeah, the fifth and final movement of this piece is called Apotheosis, November 4th, 2008. So it's that piece was written just as Obama was taking office. So the piece is not written for him per se. You know, I, I felt that in the context of this piece, it'd be quite premature to write something for uh, 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 a sitting president of only like 30 days, you know. Um, but we all remember how we felt on that night of November 4th, 2008, seeing a, uh, African-American person become president of the United States. So that piece is dedicated to that night. Oh, absolutely. None of us will forget where we were and hard to believe it's been 14 years since that. Well, where is the time going? That um, is scary. Right. It's it scary. feels like it was yesterday. It's it feels like not only not only the passage of time, but also just the the direction think everything, the direction we've gone since all the hope and possibility of that day. And now, man, looking back, it's like we, we kind of lost our way in so many ways. Man, it's it's been a wow. The past decade's been insane. Um, <laughs> like, right. Yes, that's that's no true words have been said. <laughs> well, I'm sure true words have been said and some of them will be read at, <laughs> at this event. Right. Um, so, uh, I mean, you sort of you sort of already segued into the music part with, you know, talking about the piece you wrote on, on in November of 2008. But uh, you said that's so that's like the closing of the program. So right. um, let's let's back up. And, and, and why don't you take me through it, you know, chronologically as we'll experience it at the Kennedy Center? What, what are the what are the sort of the musical um, pieces that, that you're going to play throughout? 
Well, it's a, uh, this was my first ever long form, um, you know, I, I got opus, if you will, I, I guess you could call it that. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically, uh, it's my big band. Um, and the Howard University Gospel Choir, uh, I'm sorry, the Howard University Choir will be joining us uh, for this performance, uh, led by my collaborator in this piece, the great J.D. Steele. And uh, also Alicia Olatuja will be singing uh, lead vocals on a couple of the movements that night. But uh, yeah, in its current form, I wrote this in uh, 2008, uh, the movement revisited uh, premiered at Walt Disney Concert Hall uh, as a big band piece in the uh, late spring of 2008. And of course, Obama was elected uh, in November of 2008. By that time, I, I was already booked to play the movement revisited in Detroit in February of 2009. And uh, the director in Detroit said, uh, uh, how would you feel if we commissioned you to write a fifth piece, uh, a fifth movement? And uh, I said, sure, I can do that. And so uh, that's how it, that's how it developed. Yeah, I can't imagine you were so you were you already wrote it. You had it, these concerts booked, and it's it must be almost like a documentary filmmaker. You think you have it done, and then something major happens, and you're like, boom! Now I got my now I got the end of my movie. <laughs> but, yeah, um, you, you, you know, I saw an interview that Wayne Shorter gave one time. You know, he's he's my favorite. You, you know, probably my my favorite composer, certainly my favorite living composer, and he had done an album in the mid nineties where he, he took one of his old songs from the sixties and completely rewrote it. You know, it's like, uh, if you didn't know the original version, you would think it was a brand new piece. And the guy was asking him, uh, what made him drastically change his old song up like that. He says, well, you know, if we as human beings can evolve and change, so can a piece of music, you know, just because you recorded it 30 years ago doesn't mean it can't change. So I kind of feel that way with the movement revisited. Uh, you know, like you said, I thought this piece was all done. And then someone said, hey, well, well, uh, you know, how would you like to add to it? You know, I went, well, OK, uh, I don't know if I have time, but I'm, I'm going to make time. So I'm curious to see how this piece will evolve through the years or or. Uh, you know, I don't want to say if it evolves, but uh, it always takes a little. There's always some pleasant surprises when we play this piece live. No, oh, I'm sure. Well, Which so doesn't if, happen often. Well, yeah. Well, that's got to be refreshing. So, so all right. So, if if the Barack Obama part that you wrote last minute, if that is the fifth movement of this opus, can you musically take me? You know, the musicality of the first four pieces. You know, like uh, what what sort of stuff are you going for in those first four mov movements for Rosa and Malcolm and Ali and uh, King? Well, I did my best to capture what I thought would be the personalities, sort of the feels of uh, each one of these icons. Um, Ali, for obvious reasons, um, loud, brash, funky, um, you know, uh, Rosa Parks, quiet, but very powerful, you know. Uh, Malcolm X, uh, with Malcolm, I really, I, I specifically wanted to focus on the last year of his life. Um, when he broke away from the Nation of Islam, he started his own organization and he made his uh, pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca. 
and he now started to see the world from a different lens, his his own lens. I think he became such a man of uh, great wisdom uh, the last 12 months of his life. I really wanted to focus on that. So I wanted to capture some sort of sound of uh, someone who sort of had this awakening, you know, this sort of, uh, 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 this moment of discovery, you know, and, and uh, one of the sounds that came to mind was sort of like late era Coltrane, you know, um and so it kind of lives in that you know musical realm a little bit and uh as for martin luther king the the movement that i wrote for king is actually sort of two parts so uh the first part is called soldiers because uh that's how i think of him i think of I, i think of him as a freedom soldier you know when you think about all of the marches that he led and all of the sit-ins uh there's something majestic and powerful about seeing him march you know so therefore i i think of him as a soldier um but at the same time he sort of encompasses what we all preach but don't practice you know um i deeply admire martin luther king jr because uh I think, well, on second thought, I think almost everyone in this piece, uh, I mean, it's your beliefs are not what make you a good person. It's, it's your actions, you know? So uh, I find that in today's social media world, there's always a lot of grandstanding. There's always a lot of hashtags. There's always a lot of slogans. There's always a lot of t-shirts. There's always a lot of uh, FaceTime if you say what you believe, but there's not a lot of face time in putting what you believe into actual practice. Right. And I find that with uh, King, the way he was able to uh, really withstand all of the hatred that came his way and was able to filter that into something positive and meaningful, uh, you know, I wanted to capture that in in his second movement, which is called A View from the Mountaintop. So there's soldiers and a view from the mountaintop. And then the and then the piece itself ends with apotheosis apotheosis. Gotcha. And so ju- just so I have it for my purposes, I want to make sure I have the order correct. Does it start with Rosa Parks and then go into Malcolm and then Ali, or does it open with Ali? Nope. You you, you nailed it. Starts with Rosa, ladies first, always ladies first course <laughs> a, ba- a back seat to no one in this concert there you uh, so- go <laughs> <laughs> so it's rosa malcolm ali king obama yep. that's the order yep great thank you for walking me through that mu- musically i love how you know and it must have been a cool challenge to try to find instruments and you know arrangements that would create a you know for rosa quiet but powerful for malcolm right. this uh, awakening you're talking about for ali you know rumble young man rumble uh, energy right. Uh, King, uh, you know, I guess, what did you say? Oh, marching like a foot soldier. And then, you know, right. Obama, Obama is this, like, I guess, final what apotheosis transcendence exactly. possibility. That's great. Um, well, uh, you know, we, we've talked about all these huge, huge handful of um, icons. But let's hear a little bit more about yourself. You know, when I, whenever I have someone like yourself on, I mean, a seven-time Grammy winner, I want to hear about your journey a little bit. So I know you were born in Philly in 1972. 
what how did you get into music uh to begin with like what was it always jazz playing around the house or what what sort of stuff did you listen to growing up <clears throat> well my father is also a professional bass player and uh so is my uncle my my great uncle so it runs in the family uh both of them having uh played a lot of jazz and a lot of rhythm and blues and, and soul music. So that's pretty much um, the music that I was raised on, you know, Motown, James Brown, Al Green, uh, you know, Aretha Franklin, that, that really is sort of, uh, that's my bone marrow, as, as I like to say. <laughs> I uh, love that. And, and then when I got to uh, middle school and started playing the, uh, well, I started on the electric bass. I was nine years old when I first started playing the electric bass. And then when I got to middle school and started playing the acoustic bass, uh, my great uncle now comes into the picture. And uh, he was so excited that I was playing the, the upright bass. He gave me basically what turned out to be a, a crash course in, in jazz. And uh, the way he taught me about the music was so wonderful and so entertaining uh he single-handedly sparked my love for jazz and that, and that's how i fell in love with jazz that's great now i know you went to juilliard and you know studied a little, you know, more, a little more seriously at that point and, and some people called you a bit of a, a teen prodigy are, were you, are you self-aware enough at that point to realize look around like hey i'm a prodigy or or, <laughs> or are you just sort of just beating on the craft like anyone else at that point no i'm i i actually I, I I was aware that I was being called a teen prodigy, and it was for that reason uh, I wanted to make good on the uh, potential everyone thought I had. You know, I didn't want to be. See, first of all, it it really was. Um, it was good for me to come from Philadelphia because I was one of many teen prodigies. There was a lot of teen prodigies in the city. My my best friend in high school was Joey DeFrancesco. Joey DeFrancesco was uh, playing professional gigs uh, at single digit age, you know? So uh, even though I was hailed as a team prodigy, I was nowhere near considered the best team prodigy, you know? So, um, and then there were people like, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe people you might not know, but uh, People like Antonio Parker, who's from Philadelphia. In fact, he, he's been in D.C. for many, many years. Um, great, great saxophone player, Donald Ward. It was all kinds of people in Philly who were teen prodigies. So my goal was to make sure that, you know, I, I wasn't going to be like this sort of cliche uh, child star that burns out at age 20, you know. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to be around all of the best musicians I could be around and and take my cues from them uh you know try to go go find ron carter go find ray brown go find ray drummond marcus miller all of the best bass players you can find buster williams and let them tell you what you need to work on you know so uh i never got too hung up on on uh you know me being a team prodigy i wanted i wanted to work i wanted the older musicians who i admired um, call me for gigs. Right, exactly. Well, here here I was thinking Philly was the city of brotherly love and sounds like the city of a bunch of team prodigies. You just sound like a bunch of you guys were team prodigies. Well, I love I love that you you didn't didn't get caught up in that and you just wanted to to do it about the work. So obviously you were doing Bobby Watson's group Horizon at the back then and take but take me into how 
how you released that, I guess your first um, debut album yourself. It was called Getting To It in 95. Right. Uh, can, can, what, can you even look back on, on the first one uh, today and, and, oh, yeah. and admire <laughs> it? Like, are you still proud of that one? I'm very proud of my first album. I wish I can go back and fix a couple of, of, of edits. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, a couple of couple of wrong notes there here and there. But uh, overall, that was, uh, um, I don't know, there's something about between the ages of 18 and 25, those sort of life shaping moments, you, you never forget them, you know, uh, the good and the bad. You know, it's like they're, they're, uh, they're, they're like, you know, push pins, you know, you go back and, you know, they, they never leave your, your, your memory. And when I think back to 1994, when I recorded that record, it was a rare time in the history of jazz where there started to be a little bit of uh crossover interest because there was something that they called the, the young lions era. And, uh, you know, the Marsalis brothers had become very, very hot in the 80s, and they had brought jazz to a, uh, a wider audience than jazz has seen probably since the late 50s. And so with that, there was a, you know, sort of a, a spinoff group, if you will. Uh, and those were people like me, uh, Roy Hargrove, Joshua Redman, James Carter. Stephen Scott, Greg Hutchinson, Mark Whitfield. And, um, you know, we were, you know, there were a bunch of major record labels who for, you know, like I said, for about 15 minutes were interested in actually signing, a, you know, jazz artists, like acoustic traditional jazz artists. So when I signed my first record deal in 94, that was pretty much at the height of uh, of that Young Lions era. And when they asked me, what did I want to do for my first record? Uh, just from not just a musical standpoint, but also from a business standpoint, I thought, well, this is a no brainer. The people I want to use on this recording happen to be all my friends who are very popular at the moment. Roy Hargrove, Joshua Redman, Cyrus Chestnut, Lewis Nash. Um, the great Steve Touré played uh, a little bit. And um, I was joined by two of my biggest heroes, Ray Brown and Milt Hinton, to do a uh, a track with just three unaccompanied basses. So uh, yeah, I mean, that we recorded that album on August 30th, 31st, and September 1st, 1994. That, that's how well I remember uh, making my first album. Man, 94 was apparently a big year for Young Lions because that's the year Simba came out, too. Ah, <laughs> uh, that year, man. Hey, sorry, that's the best pun I now, can do. Now, was that, was that information on the front of you? Really? You knew the date that well? That's deep. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, well, yeah, you're, you're the music guy, man. I'm the I'm the movie guy. If you throw out a date, I can tell you anything. What one best picture, all that stuff. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Ah, it's good to know. <laughs> Try it. Say a year. Let's go. <laughs> well, I know 90, 90 Heat came out in 95, right? Yeah, with Pacino and De Niro, man. Yes. That's hard. It's hard to top that. That scene with them in like the diner, man. Is that one of your favorites? Oh, that's that's definitely one of my top 10 movies of all time. Well, they were they were getting to it while you were getting to it. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Michael Mann directing that, right? Michael yeah, Mann, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. Man, man, and you know, for every, uh, you know, every time I, I became the uh, creative chair for 
uh, jazz with the LA Philharmonic from uh, 2006 to 2010. And uh, every time I would go to LA, um, most like oftentimes I would stay downtown. And uh, every time I would go downtown, you know, I would take a walk and I would say, hey, this is where the shooting scene was in, in heat. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, that, one of the perks of being in L.A., I guess. <laughs> That's right. Uh, awesome. Well, I know uh, around that same time, tell me about Super Bass, a bit of a, a super group, if you will, because you mentioned Ray Brown earlier. But that was with you, Ray, and who else? John Clayton. I guess. John Clayton. That's right. How did that formation come come together? <clears throat> I got to meet Ray Brown in uh, 1991, and you know Ray became one of my greatest mentors. He became like a second father to me, and um, so much of what I learned uh, and and inspired me on the bass came directly from him. So it was the honor of a lifetime when uh december 1992 he called and said uh he had a he had a concert in pittsburgh and he said you know i want to try a little something different uh why don't you and john join me in pittsburgh and we'll do like a three bass thing and you know i was just going out of my head like are you serious i'm about to play <laughs> with ray brown you know and uh that's how super bass was born he he um we did that concert in December 92. And then I would say at least, at least once a year for the rest of Ray's life, we, we, we did a, a super bass concert somewhere. We played the Hollywood bowl. We did two live albums, uh, one in Boston, one in New York. Uh, we played in Seattle. I mean, we, we, we were fortunate to play together quite a bit. I love it. Um, yeah, I love when you collaborate, hook up with all those other greats around you, peers at the same time. Um, and then I guess after that, what from 2000 to, to 2008, you had a Christian McBride band. How, how do you how did you see sort of your career evolving, let's say, by that point compared to getting to it? Like, are, are you like really coming into your own at that point? Um, yeah, that's that was an interesting period because, uh, right around 2000, 2001. Two things were starting to peak. Um, in the late 90s, there had been this resurgence of classic soul. They called it the, the neo-soul uh, era. So, you know, Lauren Hill, Erica Badu, D'Angelo, and my homies from Philadelphia, The Roots. Right. Um, and Questlove, you know, put together a group called the Soul Aquarians, you know, working with D'Angelo and, and all of these things that he was doing. So there was also the, you know, this uptick in classic soul sound and also the jam band movement started to get really huge. Uh, uh, Modesky, Martin and Wood were getting hot at that time. John Schofield had had this uh, resurgence in his career. Uh, Charlie Hunter was huge. Soul Live was huge. And so, you know, at the time I was only 28, you know, and I thought, well, this is sort of my my wheelhouse anyway so let me get a little taste of this you know but i didn't want to play i didn't want to play straight r&b i didn't want to play straight jam band you know i realized that i had jazz and classical training so let me try to come up with a band that could be a little bit of all of that you know so i wound up putting together a group that i actually didn't think was going to stay together that long um 
I was having bad luck keeping bands together from like 98 through, you know, like for like a two year span there. Uh, but the, the, the real, uh, the, the person that really sort of made that band happen aesthetically the way I wanted it to uh, was the great Jeff Keezer. Um, because I wanted somebody who not only played piano, but I needed somebody who who was a good keyboard player as well. And uh, anytime you find someone who likes uh, Thelonious, Thelonious Monk and McCoy Tyner uh, on equal footing with like Thomas Dolby and Brian Eno and Joe Zawinul and uh, Keith Emerson and George Duke, I went, that that's the guy I want. You know, but, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, Keezer was so in demand, I didn't think uh, I'd be able to keep him. And uh, fortunately, he really loved being in the band so much. And Ron Blake, uh, the great saxophone player, he became like the anchor of the group. Um, I call Ron sort of the anti saxophone player because uh, most saxophone players who play jazz, they tend to play a lot of notes. It's a uh, it's a Coltrane, Rollins shorter brecker dominated world when it comes to uh jazz tenor saxophone but uh ron blake uh was somehow able to play very modern and contemporary while not beating you over the head with a flurry of notes all the time he actually would like to play a note and hold it <laughs> you know <laughs> he actually would play a note and then stop and and rest for a few beats like, wow, this is very unlike most saxophone players I know. And uh, in terms of the drums, uh, my sort of, my, my favorite drummer for the kind of band I wanted was Jeff Tane Watts. But, you know, of course, Jeff Tane Watts is one of the legends. And, uh, you know, he was busy still playing with Branford Marsalis at that time. So uh, I asked Tane, I said, hey, who's the mini you? And uh, he said, hey, there's this young guy from uh, East St. Louis. He's, he just started playing with Diane Reeves. Why don't you check him out? His name is Terry on Gully. So um, in the fall of 2000, uh, Terry on Gully, Jeff Keezer, Ron Blake, and myself, we started playing together. And uh, we recorded Vertical Vision for Warner Brothers. And we also did Live at Tonic. And um, right around the time we did Live at Tonic, um ron got the job playing with the saturday night live band on nbc uh jeff keezer got married and moved to california terry on gully got married and moved to atlanta so uh real life kind of split the band apart but we're all still the best of friends and uh one of these days we will we will play together well what am i talking about we're going to play together uh Friday night at, at the, the Kennedy Center. Center. One, yeah. So yeah. one of one of these days is literally in days. <laughs> That's right. It's just such a it's such a different context with the movement revisited versus what we did, um, you know, on Vertical Vision and, and Live at Tonic. But uh, yeah, anytime I play a movement revisited, I always I always call the brothers from from the CMB. Awesome. I love it. The Christian McBride band. And thanks. Thanks for walking me through to all that, all that stuff with, you know, back in those days too, with Questlove. Cause I remember the Philadelphia experiment was a cool project with him and you've, you've just worked with so many cool people over, but, um, but sort of bringing it full circle um, to the Kennedy center. Didn't you do something with them for the Kennedy center honors back in what 2011? Was it for, did you help produce or did you perform? Yes. For Sonny, Sonny Rollins. 
Yes, yes. I um I was brought in to uh co-produce uh Sonny Rollins's uh tribute. And uh that was that was pretty heavy, man. My my first television credit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah, that that was um that was pretty spectacular, you know, being able to do that for Sonny and uh have all those great legends there. Jimmy Heath, Benny Golson, Jack D. Jeanette, Billy Drummond, Joe Lovano, um, Robbie Coltrane, Roy Hargrove, Jim Hall, Herbie Hancock. Um, that was that was a memorable, memorable day. Yeah, that's an all-timer night right there. Uh, well, cool. I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, really quick, I mean, I want to ask about, before we run the, you know, the seven Grammys, is are each one as special as the others, you know, by the time, when you win the first one, it's got to be such a, a joy, and then by the time you get to seven, it must be like, you giving it to me again? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, well, my, my um, history with Grammys started off on such a funny foot um that the first the, my first grammy i was not aware that i was eligible for it therefore i didn't know that i won so i just get this uh box in the mail one day from the recording academy you know i thought it was like a a, a christmas basket or you know right, something the, like the that, end of know? the year swag they send right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly you know i'm thinking it might be a you know a hoodie and and a and a you know some uh <laughs> A, a coffee mug or something in there, you know. Right, a keychain. I, <laughs> I open it up and it's a, it's a, it's a Grammy, and I went, "What?" <laughs> and uh, you know, I had played on this record of uh, McCoy Tyner's, and but you know, I mean, I'd been on a lot of records as a sideman and never received the Grammy, so I wondered why this was different. And then I started learning all of these these rules about, you know, where the credits are, are, are you know, if, if your name is on the cover of the album, uh, then you are eligible for a Grammy. So that that record was not credited to McCoy Tyner. It was credited to McCoy Tyner, Terrence Blanchard, uh, Gary Bartz, Christian McBride, and Lewis Nash. So therefore, all five of us were uh, eligible for a Grammy, even though it was McCoy Tyner's album. Uh, now, funny enough, a few years later, Dee Dee Bridgewater did an album and uh, she said, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to make sure all of you guys' names get on the cover of the album. So in case I win, uh, all of you get Grammys. She won the Grammy and we found out that that rule only applies to instrumental records, not vocal records. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, man, you guys with all these rules. <laughs> yeah, what the heck? Music's not supposed to have rules. I just, I just want to know how, what kind of postage is required for to ship a Grammy. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, it's it, it's actually not. Uh, it, it's they're not, not too heavy. No, not too heavy, but uh, certainly um, it, it means a lot, man. You know, it's it's wonderful to uh, when I finally went to the Grammys, and you know heard my name get called as a winner and had to go up and make a speech yeah that was uh that's a feeling you'll never forget what year was that uh 2012 okay and for what project just so i have was, my notes yeah that was for my first big band album the good feeling 
Gotcha. And so yeah. what do you do you even remember being on stage or is it like a blur like everybody else says? Like the lights hit you and the music they play you off with the music or <laughs> is it is it a is it a whirlwind? Oh man, it's uh it's it's incredible, you know. Um that adrenaline goes through you and you know, you you tell yourself like, okay, uh be succinct, you know, try not to get up there and ramble. You know, there's there's a show going on. Get 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 your get your words together and uh get on out (laughs) (laughs) well i appreciate you getting your words together and getting on out for a full half hour with us i can't believe i didn't even know we'd go this long so i appreciate you sticking around for the for the duration here it was fun getting to you know do a journey through your own career here a little bit Uh, it was my pleasure man well we're excited to see the the mcbride band back together in just days on friday um It's called The Movement Revisited, everybody. It's at the Kennedy Center Concert Hall. They're going to salute Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, MLK, and Barack Obama. It'll be this Friday, February 4th at 8 p.m., so get your tickets now. Hey, Christian McBride, thanks so much. It was great meeting you. My pleasure. You too, man. All right, now go watch Heat. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. Later, man. Take care, man. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.